You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 120. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And check out CodingBlocks.net where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, and a lot more. Send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at CodingBlocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at CodingBlocks or head to www.CodingBlocks.net. And look at all our social links there at the top of the page. And with that, I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Jerzak. <laughs> and I'm Michael Outlaw. This episode is sponsored by Educative.io. Level up your coding skills quickly and efficiently, whether you're just starting, preparing for an interview, or just looking to grow your skill set. And Datadog, the monitoring platform for cloud-scale infrastructure and applications, allowing you to see inside any stack, any app, at any scale, anywhere. All right. In this episode, we're talking about one of my new favorite books, being it's been released in like the last two years, I think, uh, called Data uh, Designing Data Intensive Applications. So really excited about that. And this episode, we're basically going to be uh, laying the groundwork for how we're going to kind of talk about uh, like distributed and data intensive applications uh, over the next couple episodes with a big focus on reliability. And... So for, uh, first of all, you know how we, we how I, this is how we do. Uh, we've got to say a big thank you to uh, <laughs> reviewers Anonymous and Geoff Man over at Stitcher. All right, and so this time we actually have some podcast news. This has sort of been missing for I don't know twenty episodes. I don't know. We found a bunch of stuff that we. I want mean, to- would you say you've been missing it? They've missed, they've missed. Some people have missed it. Some people have not. We'll put it that way. But right. we'll, we'll try and we'll try and chew through these things. Uh, first, thank you again for the reviews. Um, we were sad that we only got two this time, and so yeah. If if you haven't left one, please do. Um, so the next thing is, no, I, we appreciate it. We're not sad. We're happy. We're happy about the new ones for sure. Sad about the not ones. Um, so the. The second in the series of videos that I did that are basically SQL Server and Docker centric, uh, I released that one. We'll have a link in the show notes here. You know, go go check that out. I, I think some people have really enjoyed that, even people that are like old hats at SQL Server and stuff. So this one is all about getting sample data that you can start writing queries in. So anybody that's new and wants to play with databases, this is a great starting point. So. The next thing is, and I debated this one because I just, I man, I hate being public about, I'm not going to be here. Um, I am going to be. <laughs> well, it's a good thing you're telling us that now. Right, right. So, um, yeah, I after much debate and, and deliberation internally, uh, I, I figured I'd go ahead and tell you. I am going to be at NDC London on January 31st. Uh, well, I'll be there for a few days, but I'll actually be doing a presentation on January 31st, 2020 on near real-time streaming with Kafka streams. And it also involves SQL server and Elasticsearch. So my session is from 1140 AM to 1240. So if you're a listener of the podcast, please, you know, either come join the session or come say hi to me. I think, you know, there's plans to meet up with several people. I think maybe Steve, uh, you, uh, the cynical developer, I think we're good. We're going to do that too. Um, you know, we've got, we've got some people, um, so please come say hi. Let's 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 uh, hook up while I'm there. Hey, when and, you meet when you meet James in person, will you do me a favor? Will Will you go up to him and say Michael says hi? 
<laughs> totally. We'll do that. Uh, for you, James. Hey, the cynical developer. Uh, that's amazing. And if you haven't checked out his podcast, please do it. And Jamie, GA Progman, uh, he just recently had some crazy stuff happen, right? Um, so hopefully I'll be able to hook up and, and say hi to him too. So, you know, definitely go check out the .NET Core Show too if you guys haven't. Um, all right. So with all that now, the last bit of news I have is I found this, I found this video that is so good, guys. And it's perfect for this particular show because we're talking about designing data intensive applications. This video is, can, can I say one thing about it Please. first before you, before you do that? You I just want one extra tease to it yes. because when you think about like, um, like what companies would be bleeding edge, uh, you know, hyper, uh, aggressive, like, you know, uh, like on point with their technology, data intensive technology, right? This is the first company that's going to come to mind. Now oh, go totally John Deere. <laughs> <laughs> so I think honestly, that's what wrote me in. So first off this, this video, it's a YouTube video where I think they had maybe an AWS architect or somebody talking about some of their processes and their products in AWS, but then they have the John Deere guy that has worked on these things to come in and talk about the problems they ran into and, and how they've solved them. It is amazing stuff. The problems they're trying to solve the, the amount of data they have, man, I'm telling you right now, it was, it blew my mind. So Definitely, if you are interested at all in just big data and some of the problems that you run into and how John Deere would actually be into this equation, right? Go watch this video. It's awesome. All right. So with that, I'm out. Did I mean, I just imagine they were just trying to make everything green. (laughs) That that they are. (laughs) All right. So um, I wanted to point this out because, you know, we had the, the, you know, the, uh, shopping spree type episode that we did last, right? Where we, we all talked about some of our favorite hardware for the year. And, um, I want you to like take that whole episode and just erase it from your mind. Forget (laughs) like, you know, hit the delete key and delete, delete, delete. Uh, because out of nowhere, Seagate has come out with the fire CUDA 520 SSD, MVME M.2 SSD, and it is insane. So we were talking about the um, the Samsung 970 Evo Plus that came out and how like it was so awesome because it was 3,500 megabytes per second sequential reads. Yeah. Seagate has stepped up their game with this Firecuda 520, 5,000 megabytes per second reads. And the rights that is just off the charts. The rights are forty five hundred. I guess it's not technically off the chart. Yeah, forty five hundred isn't dude, it? It's nuts. And and here's the thing, right? Like, okay, theoretical numbers, whatever. Tweaktown put together a review of this thing, and it's legit. <laughs> like, it's fast. Yeah, man. And you you can get it in either a five hundred, a one terabyte, or a two terabyte uh, size. And the thing is, is this size this. The price is actually really good. It's competitive it's cheaper, with the Samsung. It's cheaper than the Samsung. Right. Right. And faster. Ah, uh, kills me. Yeah. And amazing. oh, by the way, five year warranty on those bad boys. Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah. Oh, so that's killer. Yeah. 
All right, we we have another shopping thing. So you, yeah, <laughs> I, you know, it made it was like, oh great, now I got to cry because you know I got the Samsung. So you know, <laughs> this is why I said that the last build wouldn't last me until March. Now you see, now you get it. Also, uh, wanted to point out the uh, it's that time of year where Pluralsight starts doing some of their big promotions. So they're doing the Black Friday sale that starts today, forty percent off. Now, let's be clear, though. We say today. So our episodes typically drop depending on which well, part no, of the we're world gonna, you're in. I'm, the way I'm going to release this one, it will release to on oh, the Oh, okay. Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah. So um, I, I already made sure of that. Excellent. What? Really? Google. Yeah. Why? 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 Because <laughs> you said the trigger word. Ah, sorry. Okay. Excellent. So, yes. Do you want to share the link? Yeah, yeah. So go to uh, codingblocks.net slash plural site so that you can uh, get to the, the page and get 40% off of your uh, plural site subscription. And that deal, let me see, I got to remember, they're offering that deal through, I'm thinking it was December 6th, if I remember right. Oh, nice. Uh, or no, no, December 1st. Sorry, December 1st. Okay, so you so, got yeah. like a week, roughly. Yeah. But still, I mean, it's a great deal. And if you've if you've ever wanted an excuse to get a plural site subscription, forty percent off is a really decent excuse to get one. And if you've ever had a plural site subscription and you let it lapse, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go tell your boss, like, hey, hook me up, forty percent off. Mm-hmm. All right. And hey, I have some news too. So I was on uh, several episodes of Waffling Tailors recently, which is an excellent video game several? podcast. Or it looks like we talked about 19 games in just the first kind of segment. <laughs> so there's, there's more gone. We definitely did some some waffling. I also talked about the third-party Nintendo controllers. Remember, like, the Advantage and the Max? Mm-hmm. So if if those are the things you enjoy listening uh, about, then you should go check out the show. We also talked about Elvis sandwiches and my fear of crying in public while getting a tattoo. <laughs> so Wait, you, you should got go a tattoo? There. No, because I'm afraid of people seeing me cry. Oh, I thought he finally broke down and got that Visual Studio tattoo that he owes us. Right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's right. Uh, we I haven't mean, forgotten. Uh, yeah, I forgot about that one. <laughs> yeah, but guess who has it? <laughs> All of Coding Blocks. Oh, Wait, so, so what do you mean? Like uh, the, the you did mini episodes? Like, do are you moonlighting on us? Is that what's happening? What's going yeah, on? Yeah. Well, like once once I start talking, uh, I can hardly stop. <laughs> so it's like running downhill. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It was like, what games have you bought in the last six months? I was like, all right. <laughs> I'm still pictured the running downhill. <laughs> I can't stop. <laughs> yeah. We all been there. Uh, except in Florida. There's, it's hard to do in Florida. Uh, but also, uh, amazing artwork commissioned uh, by the, the, the fellows over there and uh, drawn by the amazing Hurricane. So if you want to see. Uh, just some amazing art featuring me with super bling-a-ding-ding smile, then you got to head to the website. We'll have a link on the show notes, so you got to check it out and subscribe to the show. And seriously, the artwork is awesome. Like, really yeah. awesome. So. I look amazing. So <laughs> It's the best photo of me ever. The best image of me ever. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like, how? what's the deal that he has with uh, – that GA Progman has with the uh Hurricanes? The the artist, yeah, because like all of the episodes, like he does that for every episode, right? So Yeah. I think they uh commission it. A uh I don't know if they know the person or what the deal is, but um 
You know, I think uh, Hurricanes, I think, is over in Savannah, actually. They uh, there might be a SCAD student, so oh, we should cool. get some stuff commissioned. Yeah, that's beautiful. That would be awesome. Cool. <laughs> All right. And uh, also, I want to mention, since, since we're talking about a book, that we're going to be doing a giveaway on this episode. So if you want a picture, you want a picture, you want to win a copy of this amazing book that we're talking about, Designing Data-Intensive Applications, then just come by and drop a comment on the, uh, the show, and then we'll hit you up in the comment and uh, get it over to you. And uh, internationally, it's no problem. So, you know, a lot of times people say, like, when we talk about, like, stickers or books or whatever, it's like, oh, but I live in, uh, I don't know, Philippines. Like, uh, that is totally fine. We we love the Philippines. <laughs> That's right. And Amazon is everywhere. So, yeah. Yep. Definitely do it. All right. All right, cool. Kick us off. Okay. So, um, talking a little bit, actually, about the preface of the first time, which is – I think this is the first time we've ever talked about the preface of a book. No. But it's just so good. No? No, it's not. No? No. What, uh, what other did we do? I'm pretty sure it was um, Maybe Pragmatic, pragmatic Yeah, we I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. This one is All good, right. though. This one was filled with lots of meat, so we had to do it. Yeah, it's really exciting. And this is a book I've told a few people about reading. It's like you gotta you gotta warn people ahead of time that you are gonna want to make some stuff when you read this book. I don't know if there's ever been a, a like a programming book that I've read or I've like I've wanted to put the book down and pick the keyboard up like mid sentence. This is that kind of book. We talked about stuff that was kind of more theoretical, but this one for me, like after you know, we're talking about the first chapter, we're kind of set the stage, but like out of the after you kind of get into the beat of it, it's very much like, hey, here's cool stuff you can do. Are you telling me that when you read the O'Reilly Git book, you weren't like, hold on, I can, that's how I can add, hold on, let me like get command line. Wait, wait, did you read the O'Reilly Git book, Joe? No. I didn't think so. I didn't either. <laughs> oh, it was just me? <laughs> just saying. Uh, Whatever. All right. So, I yes. I to. Have you seen my commit messages? <laughs> Something to be desired. Uh, and I obviously have never learned how to rebase. Uh, like 15 man. years in or whatever. It's good <laughs> stuff. So it, the, the thing that the preface goes into is like, hey, what do we mean when we say data intensive application? And really, there's just a few things, right? The quantity of data, um, the complexity of the data, the speed at which the data is changing. And that means that the problem is different than processor bound type stuff, right? Like not compute intensive things. Yeah. And so is there like a, like a company or something that you could, you could say that like, obviously like Twitter is data intensive. Like what, is there a, a company smaller that we can think of that like would, we would kind of count as being data intensive? John Deere. <laughs> John, yeah. John Deere for sure. We'll watch that video. Um, yeah. No, I, I mean, look, I'd say even just regular web applications, take a standard e-commerce site, right? Like the, the thing is it's data intensive. You have transactions coming in and out and, and you have to worry about the, like, what if I get a spike in traffic, right? Or something like that. I think that could be considered a data intensive application. It doesn't require that much processing power to save that order, you know? Maybe it's easier to say an app that isn't data intensive anymore. It's like if it's got a, a database and you're on the internet, like customers have gotten to the point where they, they just expect these really good, rich, amazing uh, experiences. This is something we talked about when we talked about search engines before. Is like your customers, if they go to your website, they're used to using Google and Amazon search like every day of their life. So when they go to your website, 
and they execute a search, they, they expect to have good results. They expect to have autocomplete. They expect to have suggestions. Somebody needs to tell that of, to Amazon because their search results are awful. They are terrible, man. <laughs> Golly, they are. You just got to know exactly what you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> and then well, you still the can't find it, right? And then you got to figure out which items are the knockoffs. Oh, That's the hard man. part. Golly. It's like this thing's too cheap. Next. Yep. Thank you. Next, next. So, uh, yeah. So I don't know. I, I think that uh, pretty much any application that's on the internet, in the cloud, dealing with database nowadays, like you are probably data intensive. I would agree. A lot of that. And I think it's just gotten, I don't want to say worse, but it's gotten more intensive over the years because used to be, you know, people visited your site. You probably didn't pay that much attention to it, but now people keep all their data, right? Because they want to be able to analyze that data and they want to find patterns and they want to like even what could have been considered not really that data intensive before now really is. So I don't know. There's just been so much changing in the world that we live in, like your phone. How many data points are collected from your phone on a daily basis? So you have no idea, right? But I guarantee you there's data flying all over the place. So, yeah. yeah just think about like what Google Analytics will capture about even a static website. Like your your basic WordPress blog, you plug in Google Analytics and you see all the stuff that they're pulling, all the clickstream data that they're pulling from that. And it's just amazing what a, even a static website can generate with like one person's activity. How's a WordPress blog a static website? It's not, but that's fine. We're going to let that go. <laughs> <laughs> now it's debatable. Uh, Full uh, chair. Okay. I got you. So yeah, I'm still WordPress I'm still stuck trying to think stack. of like uh, even to, in today's uh, world, like a non-data intensive, uh, you know, site or application that you know that that you would actually use. Not like not something that's you know that you made because you were trying to l- learn React, for example, uh, but you know something that that's widely used that would count as not data intensive. I mean, utilities, something like LinkPad is something that comes to mind. Like maybe they're not collecting a bunch of data points. Like, like, okay, so you're talking about like stuff. things that would live on your computer or and don't necessarily require an internet connection type thing, right? Like that's, yeah, see, yeah, it's, I was trying to like go to, I was trying to think of like a website. Uh, yeah. Is it, like, yeah. Outside of marketing brochure type stuff, like come stay at my hotel. I don't know that. I don't know that there's a ton of them nowadays. I think a lot of people are collecting way more data. I don't even think your brochure where counts. You might be right. Because, you might be right. I mean, yeah. to Joe's point about the uh, Google Analytics, even if you didn't go so far as to go Google Analytics-wise, you might still have your own analytics or your metrics to see like, hey, uh, you know, how far down the page did you go and look? You know, or how many pages into the brochure where did you click? You know, so that you would know. It's true. I mean, basically, if data can be collected nowadays, you kind of have to assume that it is being. And then it's what you do with it, right? It's so a lot of places don't do anything with it. So there's just a bunch of data collecting that never happens. And so maybe you consider those not data intensive, right? So, so maybe there's a lot of data being collected, but nothing ever actually happens with it. So it's still data intensive, though. I mean, just because you don't do anything with the data once you collected it. Though you had to go through the act of collecting it, so it's still data intensive. So I think I think the maybe the the answer is that we should just assume anything that's on the internet is going to be data intensive. Anything that's oh. anything that's networked, you should 
probably just assume would fit into the data intensive category. Yeah. Yeah. I, I could, I could get behind that. Jason formatter.com. <laughs> you don't know what kind of metrics they got going on, right? <laughs> they might have all kinds of analytics there to see like how well they're, they're, you know, how many it's pages. It's a great site. You know, they might, they might have to scale horizontally depending on all the, <laughs> you don't know, man. Don't judge them. Uh, well, what's funny is like, if your site isn't data intensive, then Google's probably just going to end up like pulling your like abilities out of your website and doing that little thing that they do where they just like go ahead and just do the work. You ever do that? Like you used to say like, Hey, when's Thanksgiving? And uh, then you would click on the first link and now Google's like, no, no, it's right here. You don't even need to leave yeah. the search results anymore. We'll, we'll like I'm not even going to websites anymore. Right. Yeah. It's ridiculous. I, I do the same thing with calculators. How many cups is in a liter? Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I yeah, exactly. Know. And now like 19 times four, like, Hey, there you go. Thanks Google. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, okay, I, I, I'm glad I'm not the only one. Cause I was, cause the calculator was the exact example I was going to give because like, how bad is it that rather than opening up a cal- calculator application, sometimes you just like, well, I already got Google. Open. Yeah, yeah. I, just I already got Chrome open. Like, you know. Yep. Yeah. Totally true. So check this out. There are buzzwords that seem to be very synonymous with data intensive applications, right? NoSQL. We've heard these things. Message queues, caches, search indexes, batch and stream processing. Like these are all things that, that you typically hear when you start hearing about data intensive apps. Um, and they wanted to point out what this book is not. And this is important for anybody that picks it up. It's not a tutorial on how to do data intensive applications with a particular tool set. They basically wanted to talk about the principles and the things that you need to understand about different systems that you will interact with so you can make the right decisions as those things come down the pipe. So what the book is, is uh, they say is a, a study of successful data systems, and they mention a lot of different data systems. And that's part of the the, um, the inspiration for me is not only the ones I want to play with after reading about them, but also the ones I want to invent after reading about how those <laughs> other ones work and the, the various different trade-offs. Like we mentioned clickstream stuff. It's very important for them to ingest data fast. And they don't really care about the consistency up front. They care that they don't drop any information. So the, the book really gets into the kind of the trade-offs that, that different systems make, different databases, different tools, and different architectures make. And uh, yeah, it, it reminds me a lot of kind of the data structures and algorithms that we've talked, but just at like a much kind of bigger level. Yeah, it, it's system design type level, right? And what you just said is a key part of this is examining the algorithms and the trade-offs they make. So basically there is no silver bullet, right? Like whatever your situation is, like the clickstream, you got to write this stuff as fast as possible, right? Um, there's trade-offs in what type of system you choose or what time of, type of database or what type of uh, file storage or whatever is being utilized there versus something that's read optimized or whatever. So there's, there's truly like, I, I think all three of us have been doing this for a long time. Like we can't point at one single technology and say that thing will do everything I need it to do. Right. Yeah. It's great. When you think about when it comes to this, like storing data in a computer, like there's, there's not so many really different tools that you have. You basically, you've got like trees, you've got hash tables, you've got arrays, uh, and that's kind of it. <laughs> and everything else is just how you kind of put those things together and how you use that data. Right. So this, this book, uh, does a lot of kind of diving into all that stuff, uh, for various different systems and relational databases and even the different kinds of trees that different major databases, uh, use that make them different, have a big effect on how they behave at, at a higher level. 
And so before we get to all that, we kind of have to lay out this baseline and kind of talk about the ways that we're going to kind of judge and rate and discuss these different systems. And that's what today is all about. But we're still in the preface. So yep. I'm jumping ahead. Now, obviously, um, this book would be for DevOps engineers. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely for those folks. No, I'm just trolling you. Don't don't go there. There's no such thing. All right, moving on. We got some great comments, by the way. If you head to the website, oh man, yeah that that was actually an excellent episode. We we got tons of feedback on that one. But yeah, seriously, who's this book for? Software engineers, architects, and system managers. Pe- people that are involved with keeping these things alive and understanding how they work. And uh, who does want to appeal to? I think uh, anyone who wants to learn how to make a uh, system scalable. Like, uh, there you go, Alan. Knock, knock. <laughs> and, a billion uh, users. You need to <laughs> make your applications highly available and uh, more maintainable, which is uh, something that we always keep coming back to. And uh, you just maybe want to know how these things work. And building for scale you don't need is wasted effort. Wait, I thought this whole book was about scaling. What the heck? I hate this quote. Uh, I actually loved this entry in there. Is they were talking about it, right? Like, yeah, totally. If you if you're gonna go build it for a million users before you have the first user, then then you're wasting time. It's premature optimization, right? We've talked about it before. The whole Yagni principle. Yeah, you know that runs. So, yeah, when I was working through the the educative course on system design, I could not believe how big of a part just getting estimates on data transfer and data storage was for all those systems. So like when we're talking about Twitter, it's like, okay, well how many terabytes, how much is going over the wire? How much are we storing about each user? How well is this going to grow? All those things are really big questions to ask because they all help you kind of make decisions about the technology. And in reading this book, I realized that a lot of those decisions weren't so much like I need to go off and read a book about each of these and come back. Like you could say, even knowing just a little bit about kind of high level, how databases are organized and categorized, you could take a use case like that and say, well, uh, numbers matter a lot and I don't care about selecting individual records. So I'm looking at OLAP databases so I can cut like half the databases off. I can just exclude them from my research right there. So I don't need to go read about what's hot. I can like categorically filter down based on my situation to find the, the systems that are good for me. And even if I don't want to bring those systems in because, you know, adding new technology is always scary. I can look at how those systems solve those problems and use that to kind of influence my decisions. And that's basically what they said here is getting at what you just said is, yeah, you maybe don't need to build this thing to, to be able to scale like that from the beginning, but having an idea of what type of, or how much data and what type of data and the complexity will at least put in your mind the types of systems that you're going to be targeting when you're building your application, right? Like if you know you're going to be a right intensive application, you're going to be looking at, at technologies that target that type of thing versus a read or an analytics thing or whatever, right? Like they all will, knowing these tools that are available will help drive better decisions. That's what it's all about is making that better data intensive applications. And what's the book they, they mentioned, uh, the term big data. And I think this book came out two years ago, 2017. Uh, and big data was like the term then. Like everyone was so around the world. We've kind of gotten away from it a little bit because I think there, like, there was a kind of a ruckus around what 
people considered to be big. And it was different for different people in different organizations. Like obviously Facebook's, uh, you know, idea of big data is very different from almost anyone else's right, right. in the world. And uh, that doesn't mean that these tools aren't applicable to you or that, you know, some of the techniques aren't applicable. So people just kind of got away from using that term and, I'm not really sad to see it go, but it does make things a little bit harder if you can't really kind of classify the type of stuff you're doing. But, uh, yeah. Oh, and the book doesn't like the term either. So, yeah. Uh, just to clarify, you were talking about like when the book was released, it came out March 2017. Oh, it's two years old. Interesting. Yeah. So, okay. I mean, the term big data is even way back before 2017. Right. Five years at least. Yeah. Before that. Because uh, the previous election, they were already talking about, there were like big data teams working on elections to find out, you know, what was going on. So 20, what, 2016, there was. I mean, I can remember back to like 2010 hearing people talk about big data. Yeah. So, or data. I'm not not an early adopter. So, reading a book that's only two years old, like, I I should get a medal. (laughs) I should get a cookie for that. Uh, I mean, obviously, we were. I mean, this is awkward now. We were going to give you one, but now that you brought it up, <laughs> oh, forget sure. about it. Oh, man. Hey, but a heads up here too. They don't refer to it as big data in the book because they didn't like the term. So they're, they basically start talking about single node versus distributed systems because that's when you start getting into this whole, you know, complex uh, system stuff with, with large data and needing to be able to do stuff with it. Um, yeah, there are two numbers in programming, one and many, right? Right. <laughs> and off by one error is the, the throw that off too. Um, the book also, if you pick this up, they have a heavy bias towards FOSS, free open source software. And primarily they said because with that stuff, you can look at the underlying implementation of what it's doing, right? So <laughs> – Which is so – sometimes so frustrating – necessary because mm-hmm. sometimes depending on what software you're looking at, the documentation is lacking and you can actually like find, uh, you know, find, find that the code and or tests that go along with it might be better. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I hate it though. I hate it when that happens. Just like I uh, submitted a pull request and got it merged into Elasticsearch, so I am officially a contributor because nice. I fixed some documentation. Nice. Yeah, I thought you looked different. <laughs> yep. My <laughs> head got a little bigger. Uh, that's awesome. All right. I think, Joe, you've got a question in here, I would imagine. Yeah, and this is something I was kind of thinking about uh, when, when reading kind of the preface of the book, and I don't think they really ever kind of dive into it, but – I'm kind of wondering, like, are we living right now in the golden age of data? What does that mean? Yeah, I was going to say, like, <laughs> how would you define yeah. that? Yeah. So the way I kind of thought about this is, like, uh, I kind of thought about, like, the history of the web. And, like, there's been kind of, like, a couple of big revolutionary kind of moments, even in the last 20 years, like, with jQuery coming out. It was, like, a big pivotal moment because something new came out and a bunch of people flocked to it and all uh, – ton of innovation all happened around the same time and then things kind of leveled off and then like when ruby came out that was like another one and then um like what you call it um angular kind of kicked off another one where these things kind of go in like these bursts of innovation when node came out my gosh that like changed the entire web and so there are these kind of these big leaping moments i kind of was wondering is like are we at a point where we're kind of leaping right now really hard in the data space and the reason i i say that is because five ten years ago when it came time to choosing a database, it was like SQL Server or MySQL or Oracle, 
right? Those are my choices. And then, you know, NoSQL was kind of new, I think, around 10 years. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm not so accurate on that. But that was kind of new. And so people started thinking, okay, well, I'm, am I doing relational or NoSQL? But it was still kind of like that was the question. It was basically, am I doing Mongo or DocumentDB or SQL Server? But now here we are in 2019 and it's, a much more complicated question because even if you look at the the host of services for say Amazon, it's like Neptune and RDS and then DynamoDB and all the various different NoSQL providers and even Neptune, uh, not Neptune. Um, I was thinking Azure's Cosmos has multiple different interfaces. So if you want to do graph or relational or whatever, it's it's just gotten a lot more complicated and it's competition and it's good and I just think that there's a lot of cool things kind of being built in that space and there's a lot of like innovation happening specifically around databases and the different categories of databases that wasn't really happening 15 years ago, I think. So I'm going to say no. And here's my reason. So as we were talking about abusing the uses of Google, rather than uh, going to like a dictionary or the source and saying like, okay, like, what exactly would you, how would you define golden age? I went to Google and said, define golden age. <laughs> and Google's definition for golden age is the period when a specified art, skill, or activity is at its peak. Mm. And even based okay. off of the things that you just said, I'm like, well, we're still, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Google. Google was recognizing. We're having like data's peaked. I'm calling it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, clearly, clearly oh. our bots in the house have not peaked. <laughs> that we're definitely not at the golden age for those. Okay, Google, stop. That's enough already. You've, you've gone too far, man. But How about we call it like so, a Cambrian explosion? Like there's a, an explosion of evolution. So I uh, – I would say explosion to me is more accurate because I feel like right now there are so many technology. You know, we've, we've joked about in the past, like there's so many JavaScript frameworks that seem to come up every five minutes or whatever. Like I sort of feel that way about, about data tooling right now. Maybe not because you asked if it's not databases, but the age of data. I think so because there's so much of it that people don't know how to handle it. And there's so many tools springing up to handle so many different use cases that it is sort of a minefield to try and walk around and figure out what am I supposed to use here? Right. Yeah. Which is kind of just to, you know, finish my point where I was going. I was like, I think that because we're still, there's still so much new innovation happening in it. That's why I'm not sure to say like, you know, I don't know if we're at our peak yet because maybe we could still be on the uphill climb. I think we are. Um, you know, you look at things like, uh, you know, all the different search, uh, technologies that are out there as an example, right? Um, <clears throat> the other thing I want to mention that just dawned on me too, is that, uh, don't hate me if your phone or some device in your house just went, uh, crazy because I was trying to turn off the random one yours <laughs> here in my house, uh, because it decided to listen. So I feel your pain is what I'm trying to say. So interestingly enough, if we think about this, I think we are entering an area to where it's probably one of the most important things that everybody cares about, right? So I don't know that we've arrived at the golden age of it or we're at the, at the peak or the epitome of it, 
But I mean, just think about you guys saw the, I'm sure that you guys did saw the article about the Tesla thing that hit somebody because it only looked for people crossing the street at crosswalks. Oh, right. Right. And we're talking this, about the, uh, the Tesla, uh, feature to bring your, the car to you. Is that the feature? I can't that, I think remember. The feature? It might have been, but I do know that it just it, it didn't see a crosswalk, and so when somebody just randomly crossed the street, it's like, oh, that's clearly nobody would be jaywalking, right? So it's it's definitely interesting because that's all driven by data, right? Like that's all it's collecting thousands of data points per what second or maybe even more, and. It hasn't been trained. And so like this whole notion of every little bit that you get might matter. You know, we as humans have the ability to tie things together in ways that we don't really even think about. Machines don't have that capability. So storing data is different when you're trying to put it on a hard disk than things that just bounce around in our little, you know, meaty heads here. So it's a, I don't know. Have you seen Joe? Because his is bigger now. Because <laughs> I don't know if you've heard, he's a he got that PR that's right. core contributor. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Put that on the resume. So, uh, the other morning, uh, I woke up. I woke up really early, like four in the morning, and I was like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna look at Neo 4 J. I've been meaning to get into graphic database no for one a while." <laughs> <laughs> at four a.m. in the morning. Right? <laughs> Hey, I tweeted about it and they, they responded. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I, I got up and I was like, let me, let me do this. Man, within minutes, I had it running thanks to Docker. I found a compose file or a, a Docker run command and just ran it. I didn't have to set it up. I didn't have to install. It was just there. And if I wanted to, you know, publish or get my little app proof of concept running, like it, it was just really easy. And that, like between the cloud and I want to, I want to give some of the credit to uh, machine learning too for kind of driving some of the needs for some of these different kinds of data processing. Cause now, uh, like, like we talked about with the, um, the example from uh, Tesla, like relational database doesn't really make sense for that sort of thing. Like getting the data in there really quickly is important and maybe dropping little bits of information, little bits of information isn't such a big deal for that. So like streaming data sources has had a, a big impact in real time machine learning has had a big impact has been a big driving force between some of these big data systems that we didn't really have before. So it's like, Every time we uh, invent some new way of, you know, some new technique or ability, we have to go in, you know, up in the whole apple cart in order to support it and and to make these things make sense. So I think that a lot of the things that have been coming out and even services like, uh, was it AWS Kinesis, Azure's got their own kind of event hub. And like, I mean, it's like every week, all these different kind of ancillary services are, are spinning up. Like you can see how many uh, AWS services uh, uh, Amazon has. I don't think anyone even knows how many services they have. And people joke about a new JavaScript framework. Every every day, like man, have you seen AWS? Right, their services are out of control. Ha, have yep. you noticed? I don't know if this maybe this will be lost on you. I don't know if you've paid attention to this, but you know, you remember the days of when you would go to the AWS console and you just saw all of the available options there, and you would like click on it. Yeah, and now it's just like here's the last five you looked at. <laughs> Do you want one of these? <laughs> yeah, yep. yep. I can't even tell what I have running anymore. I legitimately don't know. It's it's nuts, but yeah, the, I need to talk to you about our bill. But, <laughs> right? but but on the flip side, like you said, a lot of this stuff is making the barrier to entry super low, right? Docker, 
the fact that you could have Neo for J running by Docker run Neo for J, like that's nuts, dude. Like we all remember the days where like, oh, we got to get our development environment set up. That's going to take us a few hours because we got to download and install SQL server. And like that, this stuff is turning into where people can get up and running so fast that it's insane. Docker is still so amazing. I mean, pretty I soon, like, Docker. I, you know what? I wonder, I'm going to go search Docker Hub for this. This has got to be a thing. I bet you there, somebody has just put something out there like as simple as like a calculator and you could just like Docker run calculate this. I bet there is because uh. <laughs> did you know that there's a whole slew of Docker images for windows? Oh yeah. That would allow you to basically do Linux commands like curl or SSH yeah. or whatever. There actually are. There's like, hold on. There's, if you search Docker hub for calculator 512 results come back that's ridiculous that is that is way more than i thought there's yeah there's calculator services i just want to like docker run calculator and get something (laughs) or docker run calculate would be Uh, better that's amazing um that was a bunch of people taking (laughs) tutorials you know that was yeah probably (laughs) uh you you brought up the um uh where were you going with that though like using using the windows Docker containers to run Linux commands. Yeah. Yeah. They basically have wrappers so that people, people that are in windows that are more familiar and comfortable with Linux things like curl was one W get might be another one. Instead of having to learn PowerShell commands, you could actually do a Docker run, uh, curl <laughs> and, and pass it in the arguments and it'll basically run that stuff for you. So yeah, the, see, I thought where you, I thought where you might be going is that, cause we've talked about this before. And uh, I won't. I wasn't able to pronounce his name then, and I won't be able to pronounce his name now. But uh, one of the, um, he was the Docker Captain Microsoft MVP on uh, Docker Hub. He's got eight eighty seven repositories on Docker Hub. Uh, you know, and as far as I know, I think they're all like Windows based. You know how you could do things, um, different different things on Windows, right? Um, Stefan Schurer. I, I, I'm sorry. I know I'm like ruining his name, but uh, yeah. So it's like to your point about um, Linux commands on there. So like one of them is who am I? Right. Or, you know, there's another one on here that was open SSH. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then he's also got other ones on here that are like, um, let's see. Let me find a good one. That would be, uh, Nothing's like, oh, I want to do an NS map or NS lookup or something like that. Or like, oh, but I'm on Windows or uh, even like, um, what's called Telnet, whatever, which is uh, not installed by default. Like, if you've ever looked like, how do you Telnet in PowerShell or something, then uh, you could instead Google how to Telnet in Docker. Right. I mean, he's got, yeah, Python for Windows, uh, Postgres for Windows, Chocolatey. Mm-hmm. If you don't want to install Chocolatey, but you want to use Chocolatey. Ooh. That's pretty cool. I like that. It seems a little crazy to me, but curl was another one that he had in there. Um he he's got a ton of them. Yeah. So he might have earned that Docker Captain title, I'm just saying. I mean, it, it is it is amazing the world we live in and I think to, you know, wrapping wrapping up that point, I think we are living in a world where data is king. I don't know that the tooling's there yet, but it's it's definitely or the laws. Say what? The or, laws are still developing oh to prevent God. uh GDPR. <laughs> yeah, some of the misuse. Oh man. 
This episode is sponsored by Educative.io. Every developer knows that being a developer means constantly learning new frameworks, languages, patterns, and practices. But there's so many resources out there. Where should you go? Meet Educative.io. Educative.io is a browser-based learning environment allowing you to jump right in and learn as quickly as possible without needing to set up and configure your own local environment. The courses are full of interactive exercises and playgrounds that are not only super visual, but more importantly, they're engaging. And the text-based courses allow you to easily skim the course back and forth like a book. No need to scrub through hours of video to get all the parts you care about. Amazingly, they have all of these courses available with free trials and a 30-day return policy. So there's no risk to you. You can try any course to track that you want. So they just announced some awesome new ones. Grokking computer networking for software engineers, right? Which I was like, oh, that's amazing because like we need to have uh, an appreciation for the network layer as well. And then, you know, I think we talked about this before too, um, but they've expanded the concurrency uh, section. Do you, does that sound familiar? Didn't we talk about that? Cause I remember they like introduced it for C just recently and now they've expanded it to Ruby concurrency for senior engineering interviews. Oh, that's really great. And, uh, like I mentioned on the, the, uh, a few times before the grokking the system design interview, uh, has just been amazing. And I've been looking at it again tonight, uh, looking at the various ways that things of, uh, systems are put together and it fits really perfectly with the stuff that we've been reading and talking about, uh, on the, on the book. Yeah. Very applicable to, to this episode as well as future episodes that we will be talking about on this book. Excellent. So start your learning today by going to educative.io slash coding blocks. That's educative. E-D-U-C-A-T-I-V-E dot I-O slash coding blocks and get 20% off any course. All right. Well, I think now we can finally get out of the preface and move into the main uh, chapters of the book. I mean, if you'd like. So we'll start with uh, chapter one, reliable, scalable, and maintainable applications. And uh, most applications today are data intensive, just like we kind of talked about. But they want to make the distinction here between data intensive and compute intensive, which I thought was interesting. Is uh, when I was first learning programming, it was very much more about the computer and distributed systems was kind of like a, you know, a paragraph at the very last chapter of your computer science one book, like just letting you know that it's a thing. And now it's much more common to deal with these distributed systems and you're usually tr- traditionally uh, commodity hardware. And we've talked about this before where the price of compute doesn't scale linearly, right? So a uh, 100 gigahertz processor is uh, significantly cheaper than uh, – it's it's more than you know, 100. What's, what, give me, help, the, help me out here, hardware peeps. Like what's a real processor and what's one that's twice I, I as wanted to fast? hear your 19,900 megahertz processor. <laughs> I thought we were going really good. Is it a oh? Is it a Pentium? <laughs> With a turbo. Like, okay, fine. One point one gigawatt. <laughs> the turbo button. <laughs> uh, all your DOS applications. If you ever had a fast. computer with a turbo button, when did you not have that turbo button on? When you played video games that were coded to a certain frequency oh, because they yeah, would go okay, too fast. Fine. You're yeah. right. Yeah, man, I remember those days. They were awful. Fine. Oh, how about this? How about cores? We say like you can you can uh, do a cloud uh, cloudy computer EC2 instance with two cores and you'll pay uh, ten dollars a month, but you go up to uh, four cores, twice as many cores, and now you're paying twenty five bucks a month. Yeah, and that keeps going until you get to where you're doing say thirty two cores, and it's 
way more than 16 times more expensive. It could be 100 times more expensive because the costs don't scale literally. And so it's become more cost effective for businesses to just have more computers that are cheaper, crappier hardware. Well, that's one thing, and I don't remember if it was in this book. It might have been that I do want to point out is using the term commodity hardware. A lot of people, it, it used to be associated with buying really crap hardware, right? Like, hey, we can run it on the cheapest thing we can find. It doesn't matter if it fails, whatever. Th- that sort of changed now to where commodity hardware means off-the-shelf type stuff. I always thought that's what it meant. It, it, it was just off-the-shelf. It wasn't like specialized hardware. That's the key, right? Like, so back It wasn't the, like you bought a – sorry to interrupt, but it wasn't like you went to Sun. Sun to buy a Solaris. And bought a, and bought a Solaris workstation. Right, and that's the point is nowadays when they're talking about commodity hardware – it's just, hey, you bought some regular motherboards, you bought some regular CPUs, and you throw them in there. And it's not, like you said, it's not a risk-based processor to be able to do some sort of special compute type stuff. By the way, can we can we pour one out for Sun? <laughs> Is it too late? We're very topical. It's been also <laughs> while we're while we're on this topical note here, am I like maybe showing my age? Because Joe's talking about like, oh, hey, you remember in your uh, computer science one hundred one book? And there was like a chapter or a paragraph on distributed computing. Yeah, mine didn't. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I feel a little bit better because I was like, "Whoa, dude!" But in fairness, I probably wasn't paying attention. So. Well, there was a, there were that that is a strong possibility, <laughs> right? Yeah. So there might have. However, been a yeah, yeah. I would I like know. to think that I paid attention. I. Th- you know, we're all showing our age by having books for our <laughs> computer science courses. I know. In fairness, <laughs> I don't use books, right? I do well, that's why you digital. didn't notice that the paragraph. Yeah, was there. That's a good point, right? Yeah. So, I just want mom and what, dad to know that I did pay attention. <laughs> I I wasn't out at the parties. Like I was totally studying. I read every chapter, and uh-huh. I don't recall that one. Uh huh. Yeah. So the kind of point is getting back on track is uh, that the CPU is rarely the, the bottleneck anymore in any sort of like kind of data intensive uh, application. So a lot more often now we're kind of talking about um, how much network or how much storage something takes or, uh, you know, latency between systems. Those are the metrics that we care more about, like, than gigawatts or whatever. Well, I mean, let, let's be honest. Even if we're talking about our own uh, home computers, though, you know, I mean, you can remember back <clears throat> to a time where, you know, if you had the opportunity to upgrade something on your computer, right, you processor. RAM, those were those were among the first two things that you might go after. Today, we're like, oh, I mean, processors are fast enough. Like SSD, I'm going for the SSD. Yeah, you want yeah. the you yep. want the storage because that's where you're going to see it, right? Yep. So, like, e- even even my point is like, even at home, those things have changed. Yeah, completely. you know what what you look for in uh, you know reducing the bottlenecks on your own machine. It, you, you remember our friend Vlad? Obviously, we do. We had him on episode, I don't know, three. Who knows? Um, it's been a minute. I think you're pretty close. But nine? Was it nine? Wow. Golly, man. You guys have. I think he's speaking German. So, but here was the key. Like, I remember having a conversation with him way back when, and he's like, dude, give me an i3 and an SSD over an i7. That's crazy. Talk. And anything else. But no, dude, I think I would almost agree with him. Like if you're going to hand me two different computers and be like, this one's got an i9 and a spinning drive. And this one has a, I even lowered an i3. I don't even know what it would be. Right. But give me this with an SSD. I'd be like, give me the SSD. I, I, I can't deal with this other stuff. So, um, but at any rate, back on track again, uh, so most of these applications that are data intensive have similar needs. Um, 
they store the data so that it can be found again later, right? Like just about everything that you've ever used online, right? Like uh, it's not even worth talking about. That's basically everything. Um, They cache expensive operations so they'll be faster next time. Uh, Think about Stack Overflow or Reddit, right? Like these things, they are not pulling from a database live. They allow users to search. They're sending messages to other processes for stream processing or other things. And they probably process chunks of data at intervals, also known as batch processing. So all of these data intensive applications share these, these similarities. All right. So, so uh, I, Oh, sorry. Oh, it's you. Yeah. I was super curious. It was episode nine. Nine. Wow, dude. That's ridiculous. I remember the old ones because those are the ones I would spend hours and hours and hours editing. Oh, that's right. I remember the screenshots of those things. (laughs) So are you saying they're painful memories? Painful memories. They were painful Mm. memories. (laughs) So uh, designing data-intensive applications involves answering a lot of questions. And uh, I think that, uh, like like I kind of said before, it it, um, after reading the book, it kind of changed how I thought about things and it made it just – kind of my thinking about these sort of things more methodical. And it's because we're coming up with like the, the kind of the right questions to ask about these systems and about these requirements. Like how do you ensure that data is correct and complete when something goes wrong? And that's something we got to take for granted with relational databases because they had the right head log that was, they were kind of designed that way in the seventies or eighties or whatever. And everyone kind of forgot about it because it just worked for the most part unless true disaster struck. Right. The acid transactions, right? Yep. Yep. And yeah, go ahead. Uh, how do you provide good performance to clients as part of your system are struggling? We've talked about that a little bit before, either, you know, microservices or having other ways to kind of protect the most important bits of your software and just keep things isolated. Uh, how do you scale to increase load? And how do you create a good API? And I got to mention that educative course again, because it was really good about kind of laying out questions like that. And basically what they were kind of saying is like, if you're in a system design interview, or if you're designing, if you're designing like a new system for work or something, like these are the kinds of questions that you need to be asking along the way. So like come up with a rough draft, you know, draw a couple boxes in the whiteboard and then ask yourself, like, how do I scale this? Like, what are my weak points? How do reward, how do I, keep the main line up if this part fails. And so it's nice to kind of have these uh, rigorous kind of like straight, straight and narrow questions to ask about your architecture. Now, wait a minute, just to be clear, which uh, course were you referring to? Uh, It was a system design process. Let me get the exact name here. Grokking the system design interview is the official name. So we'll have a link in the show notes because that was, that course is truly amazing. In fact, I will go ahead and get that right now. It is like the perfect companion to this book. So you can just go read about like, uh, I don't know what's a good one. Like, uh, I forget they do the link shortener. Um, Bitly? It's a good one. Yeah, they do something uh, like Bitly or a tiny URL. And they go through the math on the estimates of like amount of traffic and amount of things. And even the, like the bitly kind of tiny URL example is like really insanely interesting. And it looks like that's actually one of the, the uh, ones you can look on the, the free. Let me double check that because you can access some sections of that. It is. So you can go check this one out. We'll have a link to it. So you can read about how a tiny URL is put together and just looking at the questions that they ask 
of their architecture is just fascinating. Like the way they kind of look at the different uh, requirements for that system and how they approach it and how they get to where they go with that. Just really well done. Cool. And then I think Joe, you also wrote this one down here, right? While we're going through the episode, think about the systems that you use and how do they rate in terms of the reliability, scalability and maintainability, which by the way, we're not getting to the last two there, the scalability and the maintainability, because we know that this would go crazy long, but Think yeah. about your system. How reliable is it? And what does that mean? Right. And and we're going to be touching on some of those points here in a minute. Yeah. And you can kind of take any system. So like say SQL server, like how reliable is it? I would say SQL server, um, probably a plus. Like I don't, I don't know many more systems that are much better than that, but we could look at uh, something like Elasticsearch and how is it, uh, how reliable is it? Like, uh, no, it's definitely not a plus. It's uh, eventually uh, consistent, and uh, if you know nodes go down or partitions go down, or depending on replication, like these are things that you've got to fiddle with in order to get uh, to get the things to be reliable. So you can absolutely have a system that's not reliable, and I'm sure you could ruin anything. But it's just a little bit more finicky to get right with something on the elastic. So it's not it's not SQL Server reliable. Well, in fairness, though, let's also talk about why real quick is SQL servers typically on one box, right? So yeah. So if, if we're not talking about failover and clustering and all that kind of stuff, it's a whole lot easier to ensure something when you know it's all in one nice little bundle, right? Like there's no network to deal with. There's, there's none of this stuff of distributing data between <laughs> nodes. Like, well, you know. I mean, maybe we say it like – because it doesn't have to be SQL Server based, right? It could be Oracle. It could be DB2. It could it, be any kind Postgres. of database, right? Usually for – any HA environment or, or maybe say it even in an HA environment for those databases or database systems, you, you still like your rights are going to be uh, constrained. Right. If you're in an environment where you're lucky enough to have the reads not constrained. Right. And HA for those listening that don't have any clue what he's talking about is high availability. Oh, yeah. What were you going to say? Ha. <laughs> ha. It's going down. Uh, ha. Your box is dead. Uh, all right. So yeah, as, we're, as we're going through, uh, think about like what, uh, how you would kind of grade your systems in term, terms of these factors. And you can ask those questions about the, the applications that you're working on. <laughs> yeah. Who was it? I think it was like uh, Mike RG was talking about, uh, you know, it's gotten to the point where, like whenever things are down, you're like, oh, I guess I'll just go browse Reddit. And then when Reddit's down, you're like, oh, I guess I'll go browse Reddit. Wait. <laughs> yeah. Uh. <laughs> All right. Well, it's that time to ask you to please leave us a review. Uh, the holidays are coming up, and this could be your present to us if you haven't done it already. Is that we really appreciate it, and uh, we we need these to survive. So if you could head to codingblocks.net slash review, we try to make it easy for you. And we really appreciate that. So just help us out here, please. All right. And with that, we head into the portion of the show where Joe mocks me. <laughs> <laughs> Survey says. All right. So, um, all right. La- or no, not last episode, but a couple of episodes back, we asked... And this will be really relevant to this show. Which relational database is your go-to? So your choices were uh, Postgres, the elephant in the room, or MySQL, the digital adventures of Flipper. (laughs) 
or SQL Server. It looks like you're trying to create a database, said Clippy. Or Oracle, uh, the big red box. Or oh, what else did I write here? Uh, no, as in no SQL, but I actually put that different in the poll, I thought. Um, how did I write that in the poll? Oh, man, did I leave out no SQL? Oh, oh no, I said, I see it now. I said, uh, RDBS, R- RDBMS, pfft, no SQL. <laughs> or graph databases are where it's at. All right, so, Alan, you go first. Uh, I'm going to say here, based Just off- kidding, Joe's going first. Ah, uh, no, no, it's my turn. I'm taking this one. I think based off, Did you know, that like as soon as I said you go first, he was like, Whew. yeah, yeah. Conversations in Slack, I think, are going to lead me to SQL Server Clippy, and I'll go with 45 percent here. Whoa, SQL wow. Server and 45 percent. <sighs> wow. Okay. Well, uh, I think. Uh, I think I'm going to go with Postgres. No. Okay, yeah. you do that. I'm a Java guy now. What can I say? <laughs> I will say Postgres is my new love. Like It's pretty awesome. It's 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 pretty nice. It's pretty awesome. But I do I do love Postgres. So what what's your percentage there, sir? Are you going with $1? Uh, let's go with uh, 30 32. All right, 32. 32. Okay, so SQL Server at 45 for Alan and Postgres for 32 for Joe. And somehow you both managed to like overshoot the mark. I went over. Really? Okay. Yeah. So you both lost. But I picked the right answer. All right. So I will say (laughs) this. The top answer. Get it. Was SQL Server. (laughs) But all of those people are wrong. (laughs) Because what they meant to click was the second most popular answer, which was Postgres. Interesting. All right. So how far off were we on the, uh, on the two? It sounds like they had to have been somewhat close. Uh, you were closer. It SQL server was 43% of wow, the vote. man. And, uh, Postgres was 26% of the vote. Okay. So what was down below that? My SQL, I assume would be next. Yes. My SQL, uh, no, no SQL, SQL, then Oracle, and then, Graph. Man, people just do not know. They don't understand the glory that graph can be for the right use case. I was sad to see graph as low as it was. Well, it was the bottom. Right. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Andrew Diamond, for your vote. <laughs> and and I kind of wish that Oracle was down there. Right. <laughs> You're not the only one. Because <laughs> uh, I was like, oh, that's like my least favorite. Oh man, yeah, and we didn't include like oh uh, you know like looking back at this I'm like oh you know what we didn't include DBT because why would you and nobody complained <laughs> right. uh, I think maybe so maybe Oracle that kinda... so maybe maybe implicitly DBT was on the list uh, yeah. I think Oracle <laughs> might want to be at the bottom of the list too they don't seem to really like their customers do they really. Mm. I don't know. I, I, so I don't even, I guess I shouldn't say anything about it because I haven't ever really used Oracle in depth, but I've just only heard, uh, Veritrol call it. <laughs> I've only heard bad things about, uh, Oracle. So oh, maybe my mind has been poisoned them. by, 
Yeah, there are definitely people that I are know people that really love them. Yeah. heavy. Yeah, slash so, uh, r slash programming has uh, has brainwashed me. Well, slash r slash programming is not very nice to anything. So that's, that's true. That's true. That's not Have fair, you ever right? seen any of our posts? <laughs> yeah. All right. I take no. it back. You're right. Yeah. No. All right. All right. So uh, for today's episode, I thought we would have a little fun, or we thought we would have a little fun with uh, continuing. Along the lines of the last episode with the hardware heavy episode, because, uh, I mean, if you might have gathered it, at least, uh, 66% of this podcast really likes hardware, <laughs> um, or two thirds if you're keeping count. Sorry, Michael Dippet. <laughs> you're, you're the one. <laughs> <You're the> <laughs> so, uh, we thought today's survey would be what is the single most important piece of your battle station? And your choices are the keyboard, of course. Johnny Five need input. <laughs> and if you get that reference, uh, you know you're you're a little bit up there with us. Yeah, so it's all right. It's all right. Need data. All right. Uh, the mouse. My clicking game is on point. Get it? <laughs> the monitor. I see dead pixels. <laughs> or obviously not the peripherals. It's all about the tower of power. Or the chair, or should I say the CEO chair? Mm-hmm. Now, who gets that reference? That'll be the curious one. Silicon Valley. Dang it, Joe. Yep. Oh, it <laughs> got was. It. I, got I one. remember I got it. One. Yes. I got a reference. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, or lastly, it's all about the desk. Nothing else matters if it's sitting on a TV tray. <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, wait, I, back up. What did Michael? Does Michael Tippett not like hardware? He's not. And me and me and him are bonded together on our uh, disdain for hardware. Man, you guys really? Yeah, it's just it's just gross. You can't undo. <laughs> and it's just yeah, There's meat no space is just kind of gross. I'm ready to ascend. Uh. Wow. But without hardware, you can't have a control Z. So what are you going to do? That's right, man. All right. Uh, yeah. So did you know I get the Johnny Five reference, Joe? Oh, no, I did. I just, uh, oh, okay. it was just too old. I don't know. <laughs> oh, my need, gosh. I, I know Johnny Five's still alive. I don't know about need input. You don't remember that one? No. That was what Johnny Five was. Johnny say. Five. Every, he'd pick up a book, need input, and just like, oh, flip Johnny it Five, need that. input. Man, Johnny Five, need input. Joe of course, if Joe doesn't like hardware and he also doesn't like movies, apparently not. He doesn't yeah. really enjoy much of anything. <laughs> so, yeah. And, That's and, true. I'm a crutchy old man. And I hope you got the dead pixel reference because that one, if you didn't, we seriously have to have a talk. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You know, I do like this book though. <laughs> designing <laughs> applications that's what i like that and borderlands 3 that's all and slay the spire that's all i need okay well then fine then if you're going to be that way let's talk about reliability yes let's do and it Silicon and, Valley. and and what is reliable clearly <laughs> not right. your uh index on movies in your mind <laughs> and I, I really liked actually that they broke it the, uh down the way they did um i'll try not to believe the point but it's just kind of nice to be able to say, like, you know, we, I kind of advise, like, think about your systems and ask yourself what's reliable, uh, you know, how reliable is your system or your database? Like, how do you define what reliable is? It's like, well, right here, does the application perform as expected? Can it tolerate a user mistake or misuse? Uh, the performance is good enough for the expected use case. 
and the system prevents any authorized access or abuse. So you can kind of grade those individual pieces, see how it does. And I mean, I, that's where I would kind of say like SQL Server, like I still feel like it does a really good job on all those points. But I think it's supposed to be like all of those. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's uh, right. to, to me, I think it, it does really well for all of those. No, no, no. I'm saying like to define reliable, it's all of those. It's not just one of those points. Right. 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 But you like, yeah. So <clears throat> I, I kind of think of it more as a scale. So I can say like this, this system is more reliable than that system. Right. I can compare two systems and, and say which one I feel like is more reliable. And the way I'm going to kind of compare those or figure that out is by kind of breaking up into smaller pieces and kind of trying to to grade it based on that. So now in fairness though, I do want to back up. Like we, we said SQL server, right? Or probably point it at most RDBMSs out there. They probably check a lot of these boxes, but we're also talking about your system as a whole, right? Like yeah, the right, whole thing, the whole architecture. Right. Does your application with its database and with whatever technologies are in between and all that kind of stuff, does it perform the way that we're talking about here? So in short, does the thing actually work? Even when some minor things go wrong. But it would be interesting, though, because, like, depending on if you were maybe Google scale, Amazon scale, Facebook scale, you might have additional uh, metrics in there about, like, you know, page load time. Oh, like, yeah. like, if it takes, you know, three minutes to load, yeah, fine. Okay, it loaded, but that's not expected. Right, like you're oh, expecting, like you know, really fast sub-second load times. No. Oh, outlaw! <laughs> I am. I am so happy to be reading this book with you. <laughs> uh, I, I've read a, ahead quite a bit. There's going to be some chapters in here that you're really going to like. Uh, okay. <laughs> We're going to talk about SLOs and SLAs, and I think you're just you're going to be in your element. Okay. That's okay. amazing. Hey, but in fairness, one of those bullet points did cover what you're saying. The Ooh. performance is good enough for the expected use case. And if you're a Google or a Facebook, those are your expected use cases, right? Like somebody clicks my page, it better load 200 milliseconds, right? Okay. Well, fine. Fine then. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Alan, it's fine. It is fine. It is fine. But no, I mean, that's, that's a super important thing to, to be aware of, right? Like for somebody, if you have some internal analytics application that, that your department relies on that you homegrown built for yourself and people expect it to load in five seconds and you said, Hey, that's good enough. We're not going to spend any more time on it. And five seconds is the, is the bar that you set. And that's fine for that use case. Whereas like you said, a Facebook or Google is going to be like, no, that's not going to work for me. We need this 500 milliseconds. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So it, it does depend on the use case. And that's very important to keep in mind. Yeah, and even how you get those metrics is pretty interesting in the way that you kind of to measure them, like in terms of like you know median or averages or even uh, percentiles. Like you would say, like ninety nine point nine percent of page loads are less than two hundred or something like that. You can get uh, you can get all sorts of crazy with those those uh, service level objectives that you really care about, and that's how you can really at a fine grain uh, measure your reliability and then compare that to your kind of past performances. And so you can kind of like at a very fine grain level grade yourself and give yourself a, a very accurate rating at how you're doing with all this stuff. If you really want to go that far. And I do. <laughs> so when things go wrong, not if, but when they go wrong, they're called faults. 
They're usually Alan's faults, but <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> some people are more faulty than others. Yeah, some some code yeah, is uh. Yeah. <laughs> is it wrong that I laugh at my own jokes sometimes? No, no. All right, whatever. Uh, All right. Uh, so systems that are designed to work even when there are faults are called fart. <laughs> <laughs> fault oh <gosh>. tolerant <laughs> or resilient Very good. hashtag fartgate. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> and and it's important to note that nothing is a hundred percent fault tolerant except for my code obviously right right i mean obviously yeah yeah, yeah. I, you couldn't make anything a hundred percent fault tolerant it it no. like it's not even possible at all. Not even in the realm of possibility. I don't know if I agree with that. Is that what, is what, that true? What could you make that is 100% fault tolerant? You can make a Hello World app. You can't guarantee that that app's not going to crash when the thing launches. There is nothing you can but make. That, but you can't control the system that is running that thing. Would you call that a fault of your, of your code, though, at that it's point? It's not fault tolerant. Does it relaunch itself a million times? Okay, listen. To overcome I could, it? I could, I could scale this out <laughs> on Amazon. You know, ha- have it set up to like auto scale. Just have a lambda function that when you call it, it'll return hello world and scale out as mi- as much as it needed to. You know what though? There, actually, now I've solved your system. Actually, you know what? The next, the next point actually debunks exactly what I just said. So uh, let's go ahead. Faults are not the same as failures. A fault did something not to spec. So technically your hello world probably did everything to spec. <laughs> um, so I was completely wrong here. A failure means a service <laughs> is unavailable. A fault means something didn't operate the way that it was designed to. So then that previous statement would, we can say is wrong. Because you can wrong. have 100%. So yes, we're can. going to just scratch that <laughs> right off the record. We never said it. <laughs> I, I still feel like there's room somewhere. So the the goal is to reduce the possibility of a fault causing a failure. So faults uh, faults are bad. Failures are kind of the worst, right? If yeah. the whole thing goes down, and um, there for, are various reasons for why we kind of say failures are are one of the worst things. And uh, in part, it's because uh, failures often uh, can cause a cascade of even bigger failures. And so if you ever had a system that crashed and caused another system to crash and you couldn't bring either one up because they we both crashed each other, then you know what I'm talking about. So let's put this into layman's terms. You create a bug and it crashes the whole system or yep. brings the whole system down. So an example of that could be uh, you your code runs in an infinite loop. And so it just never responds to any other request because it's stuck. Yep. So the service is unavailable. Heck, we just had one with uh, with some stream stuff, right? Like it oh, didn't rec- it didn't recognize a piece of data, and so it just shuts down the entire thing. You're like, what? Yep. Why? So yeah, fault turned into a failure. Uh, did you hear about um, Pokemon Sun and Shield uh, or Sun and Shield uh, Sword and Shield is crashing Roku boxes? No. Wow. Yep. Yeah, uh, if they're on the same network, uh, it turns out Sun and Shield, uh, Sun, Sun and Sword, uh, <laughs> dang it, Sword and Shield send out a particular, uh, like network discovery packet that gets intercepted by the Roku, but it just, I don't, I don't know the details of like why this particular message, uh, is so poison to the Roku, but it causes the Roku to just restart. And every time it comes back up, it gets 
hit by this thing again. It's constantly going out there pinging for like basically other <laughs> sword and shield players and it's constantly crashing Roku. And I think they've issued an update for it now, but uh, yeah, if you've got Pokemon Sun and Moon, God dang it, sword and shield <laughs> running on the same network as Roku, then your Roku is probably is shutting down constantly. Oh, that's brutal. Man, yeah, stinks. Well, and well, whose fault is that? Roku. Literally whose fault. Yeah, it's Roku. Roku is uh, is experiencing uh, unexpected behavior and it's failing because of it. Yeah. It's yeah. And that's the tough one, right? So yes, it's their fault. Is it something that they could have easily ever tested for? Doesn't sound like it, right? Otherwise it wouldn't have been there. So yep. that that's a hard one. And, and that's that's a software failure, which we'll be talking about in a minute. Um yep. well it sounds like they just weren't running that process in a try catch and then they could have been <laughs> right. Well, I think it, um, I, I think I read that it had to do with uh, Roku's that were on like kind of a network together. They could kind of do something to like update each other. So if you're like a hospital or something that has like a bunch of you know a thousand Roku's, then they can kind of um, spread updates across each other without like bringing the whole you know uh, network down. And so they've got this kind of protocol for communicating amongst each other. And it just so happens that Sword and Shield just sends out this thing that just is the right combination of things to kind of trigger a reboot. And, I wonder, yeah, it just kind of sinks. Man, this reminds me of a podcast episode I listened to where there was some sort of – there were podcasts that would play in like Mazdas and it would crash oh, their system. Yeah. Oh, man. What podcast was that? I know the podcast Reply you talked to. Reply was All. Was it Reply All? That, that, yep. was, that <laughs> and, mentioned it. And it was they, – they, they thought – like one of the theories was it was the name of the podcast yep. that was doing it. Yep. Special care. I don't even remember what it was now, but it's one of those things. It's exactly what we're talking about. It's yep. it's failures that you don't expect because they just don't happen, <laughs> and and then it does. And trying to find it, it's a pain. Um, but here's one thing that's interesting that they say here is it may be beneficial to introduce or ramp up the number of faults thrown in a system to make sure the system can handle them properly. And I think outlaw may have mentioned this in the past is Netflix wrote their own and they called it chaos monkey. Right. And this thing basically just goes around trying to mess, <clears throat> trying to mess things up and which is crazy. And we'll have a link to the GitHub repo in here. It was a uh, 99% invisible was the podcast that was crashing the yeah. Mazda. Yeah. I found it. I was going to say the same thing. What did they end up finding? It, it was characters back to back that were causing. I think it was the percent space or something or 99% something that had to do with this, the special character. But yeah, it would crash it, right? Like it, it, it just would not play their episodes or something. And ultimately they like after years of trying to figure out what was going on, they found the random developer who wrote the code for the Mazda entertainment interface. And he was right. able to say like, Oh yeah, this is what it is. Yeah. Um, and the guy who re- reported the problem to them, like he was an avid podcast listener. Right. Like he had years worth of podcasts. It was like, I don't see how you can ever get through it. <laughs> yeah, respect. Right. Yeah. And then the last little bit here that we've got is the book prefers tolerating faults over preventing them. Right. Except in crazy cases like security where you really don't want to just try catch something. Um, but the primary reason is building a system that is healing or curable, right? So it can recover from these faults. This episode is sponsored by Datadog, a monitoring platform for cloud scale infrastructure and applications. 
Datadog provides dashboarding, alerting, application performance monitoring, and log management in one tightly integrated platform so you can get end-to-end visibility quickly. Visualize key metrics, set alerts to identify anomalies, and collaborate with your team to troubleshoot and fix issues fast. And when I say that they provide uh, the ability to, in one platform, that you can get end-to-end visibility quickly... I am not joking around. So they they have a great blog article where you can troubleshoot your .NET apps with auto-correlated traces and logs. And what I mean by that is they have a library to where uh, when your requests come in to your application, then they will tack on an ID. And as it runs through all the various parts of the system, which might not be the same physical machine, that ID can float along with it. And now they can correlate all the logs from all the various systems. And they can say, here was this one request that as it went through the system. And that is super valuable. If you've ever had to uh, debug requests as they move through the system. And also super valuable. Datadog just announced new security monitoring capabilities. And if you scroll through and uh, look at the images in the uh, in the blog post that I'm looking at right here, uh, it's uh, it's making me want to drool here. The information's great and it's organized really well, which makes some of this stuff uh, so much easier to see. And they've got turnkey security integrations with things like uh, Node.js and Nginx, so it makes this stuff easy to hook up. So you can start getting the information you need fast, and you're able to actually make use of that information. So uh, definitely need to check that out. Yeah, they, they've got integrations for all of your favorite technologies. Try it yourself today by starting a free 14-day trial and also receive a free Datadog t-shirt when you create your first dashboard. Head to www.datadog.com slash codingblocks to see how Datadog can provide real-time visibility into your application. Again, that's www.datadog.com slash codingblocks and sign up today. All right, so... uh Let's talk about hardware faults. Because if we're going to blame it on anything, we're going to start with there, right? Absolutely. So it's obviously going to be the hard drive failure, or it's bad RAM, or the problem is because of a power outage, or Joe tripped on the cable and unplugged the computer. That That's going to be the the hard, you know, the fault, right? And those things happen a lot, right? Well, I mean, there's some crazy, like, speaking of, you know, because I listed hardware, uh, hard drive failures first. There are some crazy hardware failures that have happened, hard drive failures, I should say, that have happened where like, have you heard the reports about the, where like they'll scream in the data center and it'll cause, uh, oh, the frequency the, the hard of drives it. to fail. There was one story that came out about like the, the data center had an alarm go off and the, the alarm, the sound of the alarm, uh, caused the drives to fail. There was another story of uh, a guy was able to prove that his RAID array, this was like in a home or something like that, his RAID array would um, degrade if he screamed at the array. Like he could just yell at it. How, how do you feel? How do you find that out? Like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I mean, cool that the dude found out that it happened. Oh, oh, I thought you meant, like, how did I find no, it? No, no, I'm, no, no. I'm no, like, it, what are you talking about, man? I'm not going to, like, random parts of the – random corners of the internet. At one point, the dude just look at his raid array and just start yelling at it. It was like, wait, this thing seems to be slowing down. I don't <laughs> – like, that's weird. But, just saying. But the point is, is though, like, those are those are 
I mean, you talk about unexpected, right? Right. If you were designing a hard drive, would you take into consideration the sound levels around you? No. As part of the consideration, right? You you probably wouldn't. No, that's that's now crazy. imagine my hello world app that i'm <laughs> going to write that's going to be you know just a simple lambda function that's going to scale out as infinitely as it needs to and now i got to worry about somebody screaming in the data center and, and shutting down your app right yeah, totally yeah one of the things that was interesting here is when they were talking about hard drive failures and by the way i think black backblaze is the one that that will publish their failure rates which is really cool we should find uh, google has that. too oh google does oh that's yeah. nice I mean, I haven't seen one like, you know, in the last 12 months, I haven't gone looking for one, but I have seen where Google has published the same kind of, uh, you know, what do they call it? The, um, uh, there's like a, like a death rate for the drives. So yeah, I don't know, but so mortality rate, they call these things, the MTTFs, the mean time to failure and most, I guess, enterprise hard drives are 10 to 50 years. But what that means in real life is a cluster with 10,000 disks should have one disk failure per day. Like 10,000 disks in a data center isn't really all that much. I mean, there, there are buildings full of these things, right? So a disk failure a day can cause some problems. Um, and typically the thing that's gotten interesting with hardware over time, and we've seen this is, you usually solve this by adding redundancy, right? So you add multiple power supplies. So if one fails, the other one picks up. If a hard drive fails, then it swaps over to another one. Hot swappable CPUs, hot swappable drives, um, you know, RAID configurations. Like there's, there's all kinds of ways that they've gotten around this with, we'll call them single servers, right? Like a, a piece of hardware and then having additional hardware that, that bolts onto the thing to, to help with this failover type situation. Yeah, maybe that's a good analogy is, uh, like hard drives and RAM both have like faulty sectors sometimes or, or various pieces they can't use. And if they're fault tolerant, then you don't even know about it, right? It just kind of, uh, it fixes the errors. It figures them out and it avoids those sectors because it's fault tolerant. But if your whole hard drive crashes or information isn't retrievable because of those, then I guess is that a failure at that point? Yeah. At that point it is. If it, if it's truly kaput, you're done. But the fault tolerance is exactly what you said, right? Like, hey, don't write to this sector because I can't get to it. Um, you know, skip the and even error correcting bits and stuff like that. It's crazy how good they work for how poor they work. Right. Right. And I mean, <laughs> we're talking about things that spin all day long in some situations, right? So the fact that they Maybe even, yours. Yeah, the, the fact that they work that long is impressive. And granted, nobody's happy about that when it does fail, but um I will add to sorry, but you know, we've had some random tangents. With stuff, and I'm like loading up all kinds of links nice. of interest. Uh, so you know that will be in our uh, resources we like portion. Excellent, love it. And then here's the other thing to mention, though, is as time has gone on, uh, the whole idea of single machine resiliency it's not as important anymore as much as companies are focused more on elasticity, meaning. Hey, I want to be able to just, Hey, if one machine dies, then I can just have another one load up in its place. So it's not as much about single machine failure anymore, as much as it is just being able to have something else jumping in its place. I mean, it wasn't too long ago that you think back about like you would buy these big beefy boxes, but 
not only were you buying those big beefy boxes, but you were paying a hefty premium because those manufacturers were guaranteeing like this box is not going to die. Like it's, it's, and, and if it does have problems, you can do maintenance on it while it's still running. You can swap out components while it's running, you know, so hot swappable, uh, like power supplies, for example, um, I mean, you were paying a premium for that as well as paying a premium for the support contract for it. And, you know, eventually we as a, you know, a, a, a people just decided this is getting to be too much, right? And so, you know, that's where you're like your commodity hardware uh, comes in, you know, kind of idea where it's just like, you know what, rather than rather than putting all my eggs in this one basket – Let's just spread that out to, you know, I'll have 20 of them. And if I lose one, who cares? And and we can thank the cloud for that, right? Like, well, I was going to thank Google. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, that's kind of how they started the whole company, right? Because it's it wasn't cost effective. I mean, it, like you said, you can remember back when we were paying a premium, like it was nothing to have a, a dev server that cost you sixty seventy thousand dollars $70,000, right? Um and and that's not something that works well when you're having to scale like the Googles, the Amazons, the the Facebooks of the world. So they're like, hey, let's figure out how to make this work on cheaper hardware that, that we can just plug and play, plug and play an entire system as opposed to just a piece of hardware on that system. So Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so now that um, we want to talk about a couple different kinds of errors, um, basically software er- errors and human errors. So uh, talk about software errors first. We're talking about um, the kinds of things that are uh, often more difficult to track down than hardware errors. Like if your hard drive goes down, then it's usually pretty noticeable. Or <laughs> if your RAM isn't working, then you can get to that pretty quickly. But if it's a bug in your software that only happens uh, every 17,000 requests or something, then that could be much more difficult. Um, so th- we're talking about things like runaway processes, uh, services that start getting slow. Uh, which counts, so we're not meeting our objectives anymore. Uh, also, like I mentioned before, cascading failures where one thing breaks and it causes another thing to break. And so you might be looking at like a secondary effect or, you know, you hope it's only two effects down the line from where the, the real problem actually hit. And uh, these things usually happen by some kind of weird event that wasn't planned for and it can be really difficult. And so we don't like software errors. Right. So how long did it take somebody to figure out that Roku thing? Right. Like seriously, that's, mm-hmm. I can't even imagine how maddening that would have been. No. Like, like, it, no, that, that was a bad day for some Roku people. <laughs> right. Probably still is a bad day for some Roku people. <laughs> so how do you get all those updated? And yeah, you just know that Nintendo or Game Freak is like, nah, <laughs> like, that's you. That's on you. <laughs> crazy. So the uh, other kind of errors is uh, human errors. So uh, humans, humans are the worst. <laughs> well, uh, so fact. Yeah, I mean, like this is probably going to be your normal errors. These are going to be the errors that you're probably going to expect. I I don't know, man. I think both software and human. I I think they happen just about as much because I I there's oh. been m- many times in my career where I'm like. How did that even get hit? No, no, no. I didn't say which, like the, 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 I wasn't talking about occurrence. I'm saying these are the ones you're going to expect. Oh, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Like these are the, like if you're doing any kind of data, uh, capturing, right? Right. You know, user input capturing, you're probably going to be like, oh, well, let me protect against this. They'll probably type in something silly here or, you know, this is, uh, 
you know, maybe a phone number field. So right. you can only type in numbers, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, and, you know, uh, configurations is another big kind of common cause. Like the other day I was working with a, a API that involved two different systems, and I configured one right and the other wrong. And guess what happened? I got into kind of a weird state because half things worked right. and the other half didn't. So it was weird to track things down and figure that out. And uh, I was ultimately at fault for that. But the system had to be able to kind of understand that something happened and the other part didn't. And it had to make a decision about how to relate that and what to do about it. And uh, oops, <laughs> that was my bad. My B. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. <laughs> it was definitely my best effort to crash it. So, uh, the question is then, like, how do we design our system so it can put up with that kind of garbage? And, uh, I think, um, one thing that they hit on that I think is actually really important is just having a good UI. Like, that problem could have been, uh, solved, could have been avoided if maybe that UI had, like, a, a test feature. That, like, when I put in the two configurations, it went off and did some sort of basic check to say, like, this one worked and this one didn't before it's tried to actually start up and, and running it. So if I had a, a good tool around that that made it easier, uh, then that would have been great. And same with APIs too. Like you, I'm sure we've all seen like APIs have been terrible documentation. They have terrible function names, terrible argument names. And it's kind of hard to understand. Like, uh, one, one term that I always see, uh, in kind of distributed systems is, um, replication. It's like sometimes it'll be replication factor. Sometimes it'll be just replication. And the question is like, does the number I'm giving you include the source? So if I say replication, replication one, does that mean I have one node or do I have two nodes in my cluster? Right. And that's always kind of confusing and it's totally different in different systems. And so if you can just make that easy and just like, you know, maybe call it number of additional, right. uh, you know, a longer variable name, then you can save a lot of people a lot of trouble. And if you're especially like a, a big vendor, the big product, then there can be a, a lot of headaches and a lot of time lost over little things like that. You know, the, the good UI point though, is kind of like with the example that I just gave about, uh, you know, like if it was a, a phone number, you might protect the user from entering letters by only allowing yep. numbers to be entered into it. Have you, you, I'm sure we've all seen these uh, like credit card fields, for example, where that might be another case where you only allow numbers to come in. But even in that example, though, you would have a field that only allows numbers. But if you don't restrict, have any restrictions on how many numbers, right, or or a minimum number of numbers, it's still no good. I absolutely love the the UI experience where uh, as you're typing in the credit card number, It'll figure out, oh, this is a Visa or an American Express or you know whatever, and it'll start. It'll actually put in the spaces uh, that are consistent with and, and format the number consistent with whatever that particular card is, like an entry mask. Yeah, so so like uh, you know, like a, a typical Visa might be like four numbers space four numbers space four numbers space four numbers, right? But an Amex isn't. It's like you know, four numbers, space, six numbers, space, some more numbers. I I, I don't know. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying, though? Right. And, and it's like you can instantly tell. I mean, that's the difference between, you know, like, yes, if you restricted it to just the numbers, okay, that's one level Step. of, right. yeah, you're, you're, you're getting there. But that other case where you're actually like reformatting the number based on and, and telling Hey, you're entering in at an American Express number and you're showing them the format. And then that way it's really clear to the user 
you haven't entered in enough digits yet, or you have entered in and don't enter in anymore. And then if you do, then I can tell you something, you know, hey, you messed up without even having to go back to the server side. Or maybe if you don't enter in enough, I can immediately say, no, 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 you're not done entering this number again before I even go back to the server side. Right. Yeah, it's so hard. You could be, um, I don't want to say too smart because it's not smart, but um, I remember the time I, I stored credit card numbers as a number rather than a string and, and add problems with uh, leading zeros. But another one is addresses. Like if you uh, only set up a form for like US addresses and someone comes in with something international that uh, formats things a different way, then that's a problem. Same with names. They, that's a big deal. Like uh, I, don't, I don't think anyone should be doing first name and last name boxes anymore. We still see it all over the place. But there's people whose names don't fit into a clear first name and clear last name. Uh, the addresses has been really great though. I'm, I've really gotten spoiled now where I go to like a, I don't know, a food delivery place or something and there's just one box. And as you start typing your address, it finds it for you, mm. right? Like that's the the better way to do that. Of course, it's more work and now you're involving a, a second system, but. Actually, yeah, type aheads were uh, an example I thought they gave in this section of the book. Did they not? Was it not this section maybe? I don't remember it in this section. I, That's one of my favorite I, things. I think it's further ahead, but yeah, I, like the next thing that they had on here is like another way to create a a reliable system in spite of ourselves is create fully featured sandbox environments where people can go do these things. Right. So yep. it's not just they're doing it in production. They've been able to do this and sharpen and, and figure out what's going to work and what won't in another environment. That's basically a copy. Yeah, and you do that too. Like, um, you'll see like mailing list providers uh, will have things uh, a way to send a test email to yep. a, an email address before you send it out to two hundred thousand. So nobody has any excuses for making sort of typos or mistakes in uh, emails anymore, right? Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, you sign up for our mailing list because <laughs> we we definitely never have those. You might catch uh, you might catch some mistakes. <clears throat> uh, what uh, testing thoroughly? <laughs> so this is Joe's favorite. Yep. Uh, things are changing. My what? mind's changing on some things. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, third testing is is really good and helps a lot with uh, things like this. And it's uh, a lot of times, uh, you know, if you make a change to code and it's not tested, then you know, are you you have to like wondering like, does your code still support nulls or still support those edge cases? Are you going back and testing all those every time you make any sort of change that uh, is in the area, whether you think it is or not? And so having good tests around that sort of thing. Uh, is really important. And that's how you prevent, you know, things like human errors from taking out your site. I like this one too. allow for fast rollbacks in case of a problem. So kind of, you know, a backup plan. I'm not huge fan of typically rolling back things. I like to roll forward to Mm -hmm. assuming that the problem is something that, you know, was a little unexpected and is quick to do, but having a plan in place can be massive, right? Whether it's a roll forward or a roll back, either way. Well, even, well, yeah, but you still need to have time to address, to diagnose and address the problem. So, I mean, you, you, it might not necessarily require a rollback if you have like a blue green deployment true schedule or, you know, set up. So you could just say like, you know, if you're not familiar with, with blue green, you would have like two different environments that serve as your production environment and maybe, you know, you you run on the on one infrastructure on one set of infrastructure and then when you want to roll out an upgrade you upgrade the other one that is currently offline so maybe blue is currently online and then you upgrade green 
and then you swap over to it. So maybe you would have like DNS pointing to one versus the other as an example. Well, technically that would give you the fast rollback, right? Because if anything did go bad, you could just swap back to the previous one that was in place. You you swapped out in that example at the your rollback was a DNS a DNS rollback. switch yeah, right yeah, yeah yeah you didn't change the code on that other you know piece of infrastructure yet because you still need to diagnose what the problem is but right um yeah um and then another thing that's so important like so hyper important and by the way this is another vote for Kubernetes is amazing monitoring right like well, I was going to say Datadog a Datadog's a good one too yeah yeah. Totally. Um, but I cannot stress enough that getting a call from somebody and saying that something is a problem is not the most effective way to do things, right? Like have some monitoring and alerting set up so that when things do go wrong, you get a notification. And there will be cases where something goes wrong that you never ran into before. Then you should be setting up alerting for that in the future, right? Like, Having these triggers in place to help you do this stuff is is a major tool in making sure that your systems run as necessary. Yeah. And uh good oh, go, no, ahead. go ahead. I was gonna talk about the next point. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so uh, good training is really important too because uh, mistakes do happen. And I remember like working with like customer service people, like new people, something bad would happen and they would try to fix it and like delete the order in order to oh I can't create an order on behalf of the customer. I can't fix this. I'm like, oh, well, now we got a, a big problem. <laughs> so we don't have a good way of like reliably contacting that person. And so just knowing what to do when something goes wrong and um, how to kind of basically have some good training and practices around how to use software in cases like that is really important. So reliability on a scale of uh, not so to very so in terms of you know how important is reliability. Probably just me. Depends. <laughs> it depends. Man, that's, I was going to say the same thing, and I hate that answer so much. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously there's situations where it's really important, like uh, you know, Chernobyl, nuclear power plant. Uh, there's other times when we might uh, choose to sacrifice reliability uh, to reduce costs. And um, you know, I'll, I'll say too, like now we've been doing some stuff with Kubernetes. Um, man, I'm all about failing and having Kubernetes restart. So now if things crash – and it's just not a big deal because it'll restart it. And so it kind of saves me some time thinking about stuff. So I'm um, thinking about what to do in cases and trying to try catch all these different various problems. So like, as long as I make sure I crash at the good spots and I have some control over that over when it happens. Um, yeah, all that's to say that like, I like crashing <laughs> and uh, the crashing can still be reliable if you've got systems set up to enforce that. And either way, you just got to make sure you're making a conscious decision about this and not just kind of um, letting things kind of fly. Like it's important that you understand the system that you're trying to build and make decisions that are in line with that. It almost sounds like you were advocating for like you no longer like to catch exceptions, though, of any kind. And I'm my mind is still a little bit like, whoa, wait a minute. What? Yeah, so uh, I definitely like to make conscious decisions about it. We, we've talked about this a little bit before. Like, I don't like to just let anything throw an exception because then you don't have any control over where your process exits. And sometimes that could be really bad because maybe you did some stuff that needs to be rolled back or whatever, you know. So I still like things like transactions and things like that. But I tend to do the things that are most important in something like a transaction. So I still like tries and catches and the, the most important the kind of sensitive bits. But now the, the what I'm kind of coming around on is basically just – 
crashing uh, the application, even if it's me just, you know, taking an exception, cleaning up after myself and then throwing another exception, like as if to say like, uh, we're, uh, the application is in a bad state. Uh, and a good example here is uh, something I did recently is um, I kind of had like a static initializer for a class where basically you would create like an admin client whenever the class was first called and it would just reuse that admin client statically. And the deal is sometimes network something or other happens and anyway that the client has to go out and get another uh it needs to do another handshake and basically you re-authenticate so uh you know one way to handle that is like every time you try to use that client you could check to see if this it's still open if it's still available and if not maybe return some sort of exception or something or you could just try to use it and if it can't work for whatever reason it just crashes and then the application will shut down because I'm throwing the exception and then Kubernetes will start it back up again. Hmm. So, you know, maybe that's just being lazy, but, uh, I, I liked the, I liked being able to just kind of think about it that way and just, I kept it all contained in one class. So, you know, it was all, you know, pretty, pretty small, but it was just nice to be able to kind of have my code just reflect the logic of what was happening and not be so concerned with checking every little possible edge case for something that didn't matter that too much to me. So one thing worth calling out here on what he said is you made a conscious decision to say, I'm more concerned about ease and understanding than I am speed or, or, or durability of the application, right? Like I'm going to rely on some external tool, which might take longer to kill the old one off and start up a new one than I am about just because it would have been faster to have the retries in the application, but it complicates your code and that kind of stuff. So, so this is one of those places where you made the conscious decision for the trade-off, right? Yeah. And you can definitely argue that it could have been handled better and and it absolutely could, but like every piece of code I write, I don't, try to you know to a plus it because there's some things that are much more important than others to get right and so adding additional complexity for anything is uh, you just got to understand the trade-off so this is a case where um you know in a perfect world maybe it would have kind of been done to the nines like a plus perfect and then very explicit and like any programmer comes after me could have understood that i had thought about this and had decided to let this error go if i had been more explicit about it uh, but there was something nice about just going to the class and seeing the little one or two liner method that I was actually trying to do without having all this to kind of try catch in three miles of comments explaining, you know, why we need to check and how, you know, every seven days of the service being up, it might have to reauthenticate. Right. Mm-hmm. And I should mention too, that this is a uh, probably something that is going to happen maybe once or twice in a, like a year, the service restarts and it's minor anyway. So, you know, it's all about, it depends. So this was a case where it's okay. And if I'm wrong about how often it crashes and how much it uh, gets used, then uh, I will surely pay the piper. And when I get that null exception error, maybe I will uh, add some, some more stuff. Should I ever need it? Right. Well, I think, you have one of you wrote some questions here. Yeah, I, I just kind of want to re- reiterate that um, kind of after uh, listening to this episode or the next couple ones, just think about your system. So basically, like if you use SQL Server, think about like how reliable you consider it to be and why you consider it to be that way. Why do you have those feelings? So if you use Elasticsearch, what kind of reliability assumptions have you made about it and have they kind of made about the requirements that you're placing on it? Uh, same with like MongoDB. You know, like 
just, I think it's good practice kind of take a moment to think about the things that you interact with and things that you build and understand the decisions that you made and they made to get you where you are. All right. Well, with that, like I said, uh, we'll have a lot of links in the uh, resources we like section because um, unlike normal, we might have gone on a tangent or two. And so, uh, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that we captured some of those things that we were talking about. And with that, we will head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. All right. So uh, I will go first. And since um, Joe says he no longer likes tests, I'm going to convince him why he should. <laughs> with a uh, in-unit specific uh, tip here, or or really advocate for something. So um, – We've talked about uh, parameterized tests and, and like how that's a big advantage of using like an in-unit or an X-unit over um, like an MS test, for example. And within unit, you can also do um, – so you can, you can use just the test case uh, attribute and then provide the parameters in there, but that's only going to work if the parameters are compile time constants. But if you need to create an object for anything, then you can't use that. But what you can do is you can provide a test case source and then um, that thing, you're, you're going to pass into that thing the name of some uh, ienumerable uh, type, right? And inside of your ironumerable, you can, um, you know, have a, a return statement or multiple return statements where you'll yield to return back whatever your new object instance is. And while it's perfectly valid for that test case source to be something like an ionumerable of my fancy object, I, I'm advocating that you shouldn't do that. And instead, your test case source type should be of ionumerable test case data. Um, sorry, uh, of, yeah, of typed test case data. And the reason why is that in test case data, you could then put in your uh, my fancy object, you know, a, as my example. You know, you could create it and put it in there. But test case data has specific, uh, you know, has, has additional properties and methods on it specific to the testing framework. Namely, there's like, for example, a dot explicit method. So you can have, if you needed to have some of the uh, data points that you would be yielding to be explicit for you know what some reason while others aren't, or maybe you want all of them to be explicit, you have uh, flexibility like that that you wouldn't have if you just had like a ienumerable of my fancy object. That's nifty. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. I mean, it's not Kotlin, so I know Joe's going to be like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to try not to say anything. <laughs> yeah. Reason 498 why I prefer Kotlin. I don't have to deal with test case data. Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so, uh, my tip of the week is db engines.com. I don't know if you, y'all have ever seen this or run across this, but it's um, a website that uh, ranks databases. 
And I haven't been able to figure out exactly. Oh, they have a link here that talks about how they, they rank it. But they actually come up with a, basically a number based on number of mentions on websites, uh, general interest in the system based on Google trends, of uh, job board offerings, um, relevance and social network, stuff like that. And it ranks databases, which sounds kind of boring, except you can realize, uh, it's also got a lot of information that you can kind of pivot on. So if we wanted to say, um, we got a couple different categories here, like relational, key value, document. Uh, we talked about graph today, so let's do that. So now I'm looking at the most popular graph databases, and I can go in there. And anyone want to guess what number one is? Graph database, Neo4j. Yep, number one, uh, with a score of 50, which is up this month. And number two is Azure, uh, Azure, Azure Cosmos DB yep. at 31. That's quite, that's quite a gap there. And then after that and everything else is like five and below. So if you don't know much about graph databases, this is a good way to come in here and say like, okay, if I wanted to learn about graph databases, who should I start with? Like, well, here's some pretty good evidence on which one is, uh, is a good one to start with. And then if you drill into one of those, like, uh, for instance, uh, Azure, uh, Cosmos DB, it says it's multi-model. So we actually click into that. We can see that it's, uh, selected as primary it's got four categories is a document store graph database a key value store wide column store and you can just go crazy in from there so just about anything that you want to uh to kind of to look at like find out what libraries uh, languages and sports uh you can kind of drill into it and look at here so uh, like um the other day we was talking about trying to figure out like a olap graph database and unfortunately they don't really tell you which ones are uh, olap i haven't been able to figure that out but it's something you can kind of figure out pretty quickly by just opening a couple of different tabs and kind of scrolling through and trying to read about like, you know, which databases would be, which graph database is more uh, kind of tuned for like counting data rather than getting uh, individual entities back. And uh, I don't know any better way of figuring that out aside from using basically this one site, which is in English and German. Yeah, it's a really good site. Well, this makes it sound like like going back to our relational databases, you know, that you should spend all of your time on Oracle. <laughs> right? It's number yeah, one. Yeah, Oracle is number one. And I just talked about how nobody uses it and everybody hates it. And uh, it's like number one by, uh, you know, a fair bit. Yeah, top five are Oracle in this order. Oracle, MySQL, SQL Server, Postgres, and DB2. Yep. No, you see DB2? I see Mongo. No, no. Are you uh, looking look at, at relational? Yeah, you got to click on oh, relational. You, okay, you didn't do all of them. Oh, by the way, on the graph thing, this is interesting for anybody that didn't know this, and this is not my tip of the week, but it's it's cool to know. If you want to play with relate or with graph databases and you have SQL Server, SQL Server actually supports graph inside it. What? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, oh, yeah. It's listed as a secondary store. So you can do it, graph and document store. It is. And really, it uses relational tables to do it. Um, it I, I've actually seen a talk about how that stuff's done. And it's interesting. I mean, I probably wouldn't use it for my graph database if I had a choice, but it, it's possible. Like, it's the hammer, right? You can do everything with it. So basically, the point is, next time Reddit is down, go to db-engines.com. Yep. And it'll give you something to do while you wait. And find your ranking. Yeah. All right. So... My 12 tips of the week are, <laughs> so the first one, what are you on, Joe? Are you on a Mac right now or are you on a Windows machine? Uh, Windows right now. Do you have Commander installed? Yep. All right. Open that up. Outlaw, you're on a Mac. Open up Terminal. So 
Here's something I accidentally found out the other day, and I was so excited when I did it. I think I thought I was on a web page, and I went to hit Control R to refresh the page, and it didn't work. And I and I was getting mad at it, and I look over in my command window, and there's something weird happening, and it's got this like little search prompt type thing. Now I know I've seen you do it, Outlaw. I think I've probably seen you two do it also, Josac. Is <gasps> If we're in the middle and we're typing in a bunch of commands, Docker is a perfect example. You've got 5 billion Docker commands that you've typed in, right? Typically, the way that you get back to them is you hit up arrow 5 million times until you get back to the one you want. You can search for recent commands. So if you hit, if you're on a Mac, open up terminal and do control R, you can start typing a search. And it will bring up your most recent one that matches that. Okay, well, let's say that it was Docker Run, and you had four or five of those things you ran. So the the most recent won't get you what you want. Hit Control-R again. It'll take you to the next one previous. And okay. Control-R again, the next one. Just hit Enter, and you run it. It is amazing. So it searches your last commands that you typed into your terminal. Now, this works, as far as I know, in Bash. So like Git Bash, it works on Terminal on Mac, and it works on Commander and probably Konamu. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. By the way, since yeah, we're amazing. since you're bringing up Mac, uh, by the way, we you know, when we were talking, I don't remember how far back it was, though, but we were talking about like favorite shells. Yeah. Right? And Bash. But have you updated, I'm assuming you've updated to uh, Catalina. Right, and you've seen that now the default is going to be switching to Z shell. If you, and so they'll uh-huh. give you a message like if you haven't already changed your shell, that mm-hmm. you should go ahead and change it because pretty soon Z shell will be. Oh, that's cool. No, I didn't know that. I always use iTerm two on Mac, so I probably would have never gotten that message. Oh, really? Yeah. You I, know, why? It's good. It's better than Terminal. It's like terminal on steroids. It's amazing. Terminal is pretty amazing. I don't know if you know this, but like if you have you done iTerm too? If you press Control R, you can search through your command history. <laughs> <Right. laughs> it's it is like seriously. When I accidentally did that the other day, I was like, "What is this magic that I've unlocked?" Right? Like I, I don't know what I did, but I need to figure it out. And so I just started pushing buttons until I figured it out again. Um. So, so yeah, that, that one's, that one truly made me smile. Joe, I saw the look on your face when you did it. It truly is magic, right? Like, yeah. How, how have I not had this in my life all these years? Um, all right. So the next one, we were talking about hyper expensive KVMs last time. In case you wanted to mortgage your second born or anything like that, you could go buy these, these KVMs that we talked about that were anywhere from 400 to 500 and something dollars, right? And Joe, Zach and I basically went off on a, on a tangent about how much we hate KVMs because none of them work well. So here's something cool that I, I don't remember how I stumbled on it, but I did. There is a thing called Mouse Without Borders that somebody that works at Microsoft actually created that is a software KVM that I believe will work with up to four machines. So as long as they're on the same network, you install the software on the four of them mm-hmm. and you can digitally have a KVM so that you can work between those four different machines with just a software installed. From what I understand, it works really well. I haven't tried it yet because I forgot about it. But this is basically like you have to be able to see all the displays at the same time, though. 
right? I don't know. I, I, I cannot, I cannot attest to any of it because I haven't tried it out. All, all I do know is that it apparently will work between them. I don't think you do have to see all the displays at once. I think that's the whole point of it is that it is right. truly a virtual KVM. Well, cause I've seen, I've seen software like this before. And the point was, is that you could, you would move the mouse until you got to the other screen. Uh, yeah. So, so you were using, cause the, cause there was an, a piece of software similar to this for um, Mac OS, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. Right. And, and, but you had to, I don't know. You had to be able to see the other, you had to be able to see both monitors. So you weren't sharing a monitor is my point. I don't know how this one I'm, works. I know that it yeah, shares a keyboard and a mouse. Um, don't know about the monitor thing. I do know that I tried to use the stuff that was built into our LG 34 inch ultra wides and I hated it. Like I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I don't you know. Tried, wait, what you hated what? So our, our 34 inch LG monitors oh. can't, they actually would allow you to use the monitor as a, as a pass through KVM for your attached devices. And I tried the software and I never got it to work exactly mm-hmm. how I wanted it to. And I think it was for when you did the split screen of the HDMI inputs or whatever. But anyways, so this is there. I haven't tried it out. I, I do know that they're pretty forward about what some of their um, issues are. So you might want to look at that and find out if they are. But uh, I thought it was worth mentioning. It's it frees a lot cheaper than four or five hundred dollars. Yeah. And then the last one I have here is from our buddy, Micro G over there in Slack. There's this cool thing that he found that is called uSQL. It's a universal command line for Postgres SQL, MySQL, Oracle Database, SQLite 3, what? Microsoft SQL Server, and many other databases, including some NoSQL ones. And it's, again, it's if you think about like SQL command for SQL Server, it's basically that type of thing, right? Like it's a command line thing where you can issue queries to all these different RDBMSs and non-RDBMSs like NoSQL databases. So really cool. I mean, if you work or interact with a bunch of different um, data systems, this might be super helpful to you. So pretty neat stuff. And that was it. I, I truly didn't have 12. I think it was three. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I hope you enjoyed the show. We talked all about uh, reliability and designing data intensive applications. And we also had news. Very exciting. Uh, so make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcasting app. Hey, and while you're up there on Cody Blocks, what? No, go ahead. But I mean, you know, I mean. Oh, oh, yeah. No, no. Actually, it's no, your turn. No. <laughs> and be sure to give us reviews by visiting codingblocks.net slash review. And while you're up there at codingblocks.net, check out show notes, examples, discussion, and more. I, and I definitely get to say this part because, you know, senior feedback, friends, questions uh, to Slack at uh, Joe. I'm not even what language did you just speak in? Well, he says it like really fast. So I was trying. I'm not used to saying his part. So when I tried to say his part, I obviously failed. Thanks you for calling that to our attention. <laughs> we have come off the rails. So yeah, uh, follow us uh, on uh, Twitter at Coding Blocks and uh, head to codingblocks.net where you might find a page or two of interest and uh, you know all of your complaints sent to Joe. Hey, that was a fault, not a failure. <laughs> that was that was a fault, not a fa- amazing, pretty reliable. <laughs>